don't forget, you're going to die. Welcome to the We Croak podcast. I am your host, Hansa Bergwall. And today we have a special guest from you all the way from Australia. Her name is Rachel Menzies, and she is a clinical psychology PhD candidate from the University of Sydney. And she came to our attention because she's done a number of really fascinating studies about the fear of death and its connection to several different mental illnesses that have garnered a lot of attention just because when we follow the science, it seems that these connections are in fact quite strong. And so we're going to take a look at that and we're going to talk about the science and the findings and its connection to some older wisdom from uh, Stoicism and other wisdom traditions. I think this is a case where the science really speaks for itself, though. If you're enjoying the Week Croak podcast, don't forget to subscribe, tell your friends, go on our Patreon support. And without further ado, let's get started with Rachel Menzies. Thank you, Rachel Menzies, for joining us today. Thank you for having me. We originally connected over Twitter because you found out about the We Croak app and we're talking about it in light of some of your research about death and mental illnesses. Can you just talk a little bit about who you are and why you were interested in sort of rem reminders of death? Yeah, sure. So I'm a psychologist based in Sydney, Australia. Uh, and I do my research looking at fears of death, particularly in the context of mental health and how they might, how, how worrying and being excessively anxious about death might drive a lot of different mental health conditions, particularly anxiety disorders. And so I think it was my supervisor, actually, who sent me an article on the We Croak app. And I just thought it was such a fantastic idea because a lot of my research is arguing that we really need to be you know, facing death more and reminding ourselves that we're mortal and not kind of sweeping that under the rug. So I really just loved the idea of, of the app as a way of getting people to confront their mortality, which increasing research seems to show is helpful to mental health, or at least to helping people overcome that particular fear of death. Cool. So we'll get to why you think that. But first, let's talk about some of these papers, because I was looking at them and they look really interesting, but I definitely need you to help me understand because they're, they're um, academic papers, really. The first yeah. one, which caused a big stir, was in 2014 called Death Anxiety and Its Role in Psychopathology, Clinical Psychology. And um, the claim in the, in the beginning is that death anxiety appears to be a basic fear at the core of a range of mental disorders, including hypochondria, panic disorders, and anxiety and depressive disorders, I think, um, was the claim in the, in the front. Can you tell us a little bit about that research, where it comes from, and why you think death anxiety and is at the very core of some really big problems like depression? Yeah, yeah, sure. So in that paper, we kind of did a review of a lot of the most common mental health conditions. And as you start to look through the most, you know, some of the common big mental health conditions people suffer from, often the fears of death are kind of staring you at the face. Um, and with the others, you sometimes just have to start to scratch the surface before you start to see how fears of death could be could be playing a role there. So for example, with something like OCD, obsessive compulsive disorder, which I've done some research in, 
uh, in OCD, if you ask people why they're compulsively, you know, excessively washing their hands, sometimes for hours during the day, um, they'll tell you it's because they're worried about contracting some kind of fatal illness through germs. Uh, or with something like health anxiety or panic disorder, people will frequently go to their GP, get medical tests done, check their body, check their body for symptoms of poor health. Um, and clearly with something like that, worries of death are, are going on. So in some of the disorders, they're quite sort of obvious once you think about it, um, whereas with others, it's a little more subtle. So with things like PTSD, people are often worried about having near-death near experiences or attacks that might result in death. Um, and even in something like social anxiety, which doesn't seem connected to death logically, it's not something that, you know, fears of death seem to jump out of, but even with people who have social anxiety or symptoms of social anxiety, we know that reminders of death actually make their symptoms worse. So when people with symptoms of social anxiety are reminded of death, they spend more time avoiding other people, which is a, you know, avoidance is a symptom of social anxiety, and they see more threat in social interactions than people who haven't been reminded of death. So even in those conditions that seem less obviously connected to death, we still have increasing evidence that's come out in the last couple of years that there might still be this relationship. So that was really what our first paper was looking at, was just reviewing the evidence for this. And then more recently, I've done more experimental work. So a couple of years ago now, um, I did an experiment looking at OCD specifically because we wanted to know, well, if fears of death are driving OCD, then we would expect that reminding people of death would worsen their OCD behaviour. Um, and that's exactly what we found. We found that when people are reminded of death, people who have OCD, they spend twice as long washing their hands. And they're not even aware that that's why they're doing it. They don't even realise that the reminder of death 20 minutes ago has led to them spending twice as long washing their hands. So it's kind of building this evidence that it does seem to be a really major driving force in a lot of these conditions. Wow. So just to set the, um, the stage for us, around how many people, I mean, OCD is obsessive compulsive disorder, and you use the example of washing your hands a lot. How many people have OCD and what are the common ways it sort of gets in the way of you having a full, vibrant life? Yeah, so the, the current prevalence rates, to be honest, I wouldn't know off the top of my head. I think it's around 2 to 3% of the population. Um, so it's, it would be, you know, millions in, in the country. In terms of how it affects people's lives really significantly, so in something like compulsive washing, some people with this disorder are washing their hands raw. Some people are washing their hands until they're, they're cracked and bleeding. Um, it, with something like the, the checking type of OCD where people will compulsively check stovetops, the lock on the front door, checking that PowerPoints are switched off. Um, and again, they're, they're doing this because they're worried about household fires, um, people breaking into the house, um, electrocution. People with the checking type can spend hours. Just, just leaving their front door of a morning can take a couple of hours if it's quite severe because they're constantly coming back, checking the door, uh, sorry, locking the door, then having that doubt of, oh, did I actually lock the door or am I thinking of yesterday, coming back, locking again? And this can be a process that takes hours. So those are the two most common types of OCD. In the third most common type, the aggressive obsession type of OCD, 
people will have intrusive imagery, so images will pop into their head of themselves possibly stabbing someone, pushing someone, killing someone or killing themselves. And these sort of weird images, most people tend to have studies show that, you know, 98% of people have these kind of odd images of pushing a baby over in a pram or, you know, something like that. Um, but when you have OCD, you have this really strong belief that if I have that thought, it means I'm going to do it. So they might avoid knives, for example, because they're worried that they'll um, stab someone. So again, fears of death are really prevalent in that type as well. Wow. Okay. So um, according to the research, someone with severe OCD, they get reminded of death and their symptoms worsen. That doesn't sound very good, but what, what, what do you see as the relationship based on the research today? Yeah, so the idea is that if we can see this in the lab, if in, the, if in a laboratory setting we can give people a really sort of subtle reminder of death, give them a bunch of distracted tasks, and then just casually ask them to wash. Um, but the way we did it is we told them we were measuring their um, skin conductance. So we just put all of these electrodes on their fingers with glue, did another test, which was just part of the cover story. It was just to kind of... Uh, make them think we were looking at something else and then we just casually ask them okay do you mind just washing the gel off your fingers and coming back and we'll continue um, and all of that is kind of a ruse to actually measure how long do they spend at the sink so it's a really subtle task and again people don't know that's what we're measuring and they have no idea that their washing time is being determined by what's what they were thinking about 10 minutes ago so if we can see that in the lab in in that sort of setting, it seems likely to, that in the real world, um, their everyday thoughts of death are driving some of these symptoms. Um, and again, people will tell you this if you ask them that the reason I wash my hands is because I don't want to contract, contract AIDS, for example. You know, I'm worried that if I touch that doorknob, there could be AIDS on the doorknob. So people will sort of say this readily, but there wasn't a lot of research arguing that this is a common feature across a lot of disorders. Wow, that's really, really interesting. So basically, in the experiment design, you give them prompts, little subtle reminders of death. And then without them really knowing what you were testing, you would see mm. behavior change. Uh, did you have a control group as well? Yeah, so we have a we have a control group, um, which is so that the I should say that the reminder of death is getting people to just jot down a few sentences about what you think will happen to you when you die and the emotion that arouses in you when you think of death. And this is called the mortality salience prime. It's used in, um, there's a theory in social psychology called terror management theory, which argues that a large slab of human behavior can be reduced to fears of death. So I was sort of drawing from social psychology, which isn't really read much about in clinical psychology, but this mortality salience design of getting people to think about death has found huge impacts on human behavior. So we know that when people are made to think about death in this kind of study, um, they show more desire to buy products, they become more aggressive to people who hold different views, they become more racist. Um, they, there's a really fascinating study looking at US court judges, uh, a really early study in this area, and they found that real, real judges who had been made to think of death using this design when they're given a description of a someone who'd broken the law, the judges who had been made to think about death previously allocated a bond that was nine times higher the judges in the control condition. So in, in terror management theory, there's this idea that death anxiety affects everyone, 
Um, so I've kind of used that specifically in mental health. So coming back to the design of the OCD study, we have that mortality salience condition, which is just that prime, getting people to write about death. And then we have the control condition, which is worded identically, except replacing the word death with dental pain. So it's getting people to think about something unpleasant, something aversive, but not something directly connected to death. So we have those two control conditions and then exactly like you said, they do a bunch of, they do sort of 20 minutes of other tasks just to distract them. And then eventually we get them to wash and we measure how long do they spend washing, how much soap do they use, and even how many paper towels do they use. And on all three of those things, the people who have been reminded of death are washing more, using more soap, and even using more paper towels. And again, when you ask them at the end, what do you think we were looking at? No one ever has any idea that that's what we were researching. That is so fascinating. So a little bit more about terror management theory, because uh, I've read some about it, but I feel like you probably know it much better than I do. So everyone has fear of death and it influences behavior more than people realize. Mm. Why in some people does it result in debilitating OCD or depression or anxiety and other people have more normal symptoms? Do you have any insights yeah. to share there? Yeah, it's a really good question. So terror management theory, for those who don't know, basically, um, like Hans has said, it argues that fears of death drive a lot of human behavior, um, that our knowledge that we can, that we'll die, but that we also want to live can result in this terror, hence the name of the theory. But it argues that, of course, humans couldn't possibly function day to day if they were gripped by this state of terror. So terror management theory argues that we have these two buffers or defences against this fear of death. The first buffer is cultural worldviews, which is basically how we see the world, the things that our culture tells us are important to us. So I might share cultural worldviews about um, academic su success being really important or um, you know, financial success, um, materialistic worldviews, any anything like that. It can also be supporting a particular political party or sporting group. And so by buying into these different cultural worldviews, we have a sense that we're living on through something greater than ourselves, that when we die, all of the work I did for this particular environmental cause, for example, is going to live on after me. The second buffer they propose is self-esteem. So by ticking off the different boxes of our cultural worldview, we get a sense of self-esteem. And again, this sense that I've been a good person in my culture, I've been important, I've been successful, and because of that, I'm going to live on after my death. So those are the two buffers that, according to terror management theory, we all share. We all, most of us have these buffers and we engage in them without even thinking about it. The idea is that possibly, according to that perspective, people who have these mental health conditions, their buffers just aren't working effectively. So their self-esteem isn't protecting them effectively. Something's sort of gone a bit, a bit wrong there. So if you think of something like depression, for example, there's an argument from terror management theory that depression in particular is a result of this. So in depression, we know people have chronically you know, low self-esteem, so their self-esteem isn't working to protect them from fears of death. And also they don't tend to often engage, um, I guess, support cultural worldviews. So they don't tend to engage in the same beliefs about, you know, this is really important. They've sort of disengaged a little bit from from the world and from activities that culture would tell us are enjoyable and important. There's a sense of meaninglessness, pointlessness and so on. So according to terror management theory, 
that's the main reason why some people experience mental health conditions and some aren't um, and some don't. And of course, there are whole other factors that would come into play. So social supports, um, early life experiences, all of those things. Clinical psychology would tell us play a role too, but it's possible that these buffers are just aren't working effectively in that group. And do you have any idea why that might be? Yeah, that's a good question. I'm I'm not exactly sure. There's it's it's really only been recently that people have started to think about terror management theory in the context of mental health and the people who the buffers don't seem to work for. So beyond what clinical psychology would tell me, um, which would be that some people their their, their low self esteem might be as a result of say early childhood experiences. So for instance. If you've experienced, you know, an extensive period of, of bullying or or very critical parents or that sort of thing, that might be a real hit to your self-esteem, which would affect that buffer. Beyond that, I'm, I'm really not too sure about what would cause things like the culture worldview buffer not working as well. Right, right. So obviously, I, I made the Weak Girl Gap inspired by, you know, Buddhist practice, a Bhutanese folk mm-hmm. saying and stuff like this, but I've read some terror management theory. And some of it sounds really beautiful, you know, like really wonderful, positive effects. And some of it sounds really awful, you know, like doing an experiment where judges, as you said, give harsher mm-hmm. sentences, seeing more racism, seeing people wash their hands longer if they're suffering from OCD. Uh, it almost makes it sound on occasion that we, we should never think about death. But obviously that's not where you land based on what I was looking at in some of your papers. So I'm just wondering why that is. Yeah, so I guess the idea is that it's this fear of death that drives those behaviours. So you get people to consciously think about it, but then, you know, time passes and it's not actually consciously on their mind anymore, but they're still fearful of it. So the idea is that if we can help people overcome their fear of death, we're likely to see these things reduce. So if we can help, for instance, the people with OCD be less fearful and more um, accepting of death, we would expect that their symptoms are going to reduce and that they're going to have better functioning. So I think that's really the benefit of thinking about it as honestly as much as we can, because the people who tend to show that fear aren't thinking about death. The people who are most anxious are the people who um, are shoving it under the rug and not thinking about it and avoiding it. And of course, we know that avoidance just makes anxiety worse. And I think as a, as a culture, we're very death avoidant. Um, and I think that's a problem. So I think the more we can get people to think about death, face it, talk about it, we know that's likely to reduce people's anxiety. I, I published another paper last year actually, that found exactly that, that found getting people um, in groups doing exposure therapy, so CBT, basically getting people to imagine death, imagine various scenarios related to death, talk about it. Um, We know from that study that this reduces their fears of death. Um, So the idea is the more we can help people talk about it, the better their functioning is going to be. So CBT is, of course, cognitive behavioral therapy. And exposure therapy means doing something a lot. Uh, And you actually did a study where you did some exposure therapy in groups? Oh, no, sorry. So I I did a meta-analysis. So we it's basically a review of um, a lot of other experiments in the area to come to some kind of general conclusion about whether an effect works. So I did a study studying really 15 other studies, um, which is sort of easier than doing your own, I guess. And basically we found that 
the, the studies that had used CBT, so getting people to imagine death in particular, found these significant effects. Um, I am currently developing um, a treatment study for fears of death based on those results, um, which is an, an online treatment study. So getting people to do CBT online, challenging some of their worries about death and prompting them to go out and do exposure the same way you would really with any kind of anxiety disorder or phobia to go out and confront the specific things that they're worried about in, in the real world. So hopefully that'll be up and running soon because I think it'll be a really a really great treatment for people. Interesting. Yeah, let's talk about that. So CBT, exposure therapy, thinking about it a lot, is one area that you identified in your work as being an important way of facing the fear of death. And why do you think that CBT is particularly effective at dispelling some of the terror driving so many deeply harmful conditions? So I guess for, for listeners who might not know, so CBT, like you said, cognitive behavioral therapy, broadly speaking, it says that we need to um, address our thoughts, which is the cognitive part. We need to question our thinking, check whether our thinking is realistic and helpful. Um, and if it's not, then think alternative things, basically, um, change the way we think. And the behavioral part is changing our behavior. So particularly with exposure. So with any kind of, um, so if I had a phobia of dogs, for example, the probably the most central part of my treatment would be, okay, I need to be going to dog parks. I need to be watching movies about dogs. I need to be going to friends' houses with dogs because it's teaching me every time I do that, it teaches me that actually this thing that I think is really terrible and scary is actually not as bad as I think it is and also teaching me that I can actually cope with the anxiety that comes up when I see a dog for example and it's the same really with um, treating any kind of phobia and treating fears of death as well so the cognitive part would be getting people to identify and question the thoughts they have about death so for example if I have a thought um, death is a horrible thing it would be getting me to, okay, think about what are other perspectives on this? Is this thought helping me or is it just distressing me? And if it's distressing me, is there a different way I can think about death? Or maybe it would be a thought like I couldn't cope with the death of my partner, for instance. And again, getting me to question, okay, yes, it would be distressing, but is it really true that my whole life would just completely fall apart? My life would be ruined forever. Is there evidence against that worry of mine? And with exposure, we, we know that exposure is the gold standard treatment for anxiety. So getting people to go out and confront whatever they've been avoiding, we know that that works. And we now know that it works for fears of death as well with the meta-analysis I ran. So getting people to go out to, um, it could be to cemeteries, it could be planning their own will, it could be watching movies or reading books where people have a terminal illness confronting that thing that they've avoided for so long it teaches them that it's not as bad as they think it is and that they can actually cope with the anxiety and distress that comes up when they face that and we know that over time with repeated exposure um, to anything that anxiety comes down so if I again if I had a dog phobia the first time I go to the dog park I'm going to be extremely anxious maybe 10 out of 10 anxiety but each time I keep going or each time I keep interacting with a dog that anxiety is going to come down each time uh, and we would expect the same thing would happen for people who are facing um, fears of death by you know talking about death the first time they're going to be extremely anxious but every subsequent time that anxiety should come down and I think for me, that's what I really liked about the Wee Croak app was 
it's really frequent reminders. So five times a day is a pretty good dose to do, you know, repeated. You're getting a lot of exposure in a day. And you're also getting some interesting quotes and thoughts that I think can help with that cognitive, that element of um, changing people's thoughts about death. You're getting interesting perspectives on it that might serve to challenge some people's pre-existing notions about death. Hey, Ian. Hey, Hansa. I've got a quote for you. You want to hear it? I would love nothing more. Let's do it. I was a late bloomer, but anyone who blooms at all, ever, is very lucky. And that's by Sharon Olds, really amazing uh, contemporary poet. I think she is, yeah, she's around and writing cool stuff. That's tremendously cool. I am very much so a late bloomer, and so much so that I, I still wonder if I, I quite haven't yet bloomed, but I'm working on it. So hopefully hopefully that's half. Yeah, half we're working. We're working on blooming. We created a cool thing. We Croak is really cool, and so is this podcast. And you, the listener, you're super cool for listening thus far. We know these episodes are you know, pretty intense and definitely um, hefty in length. So thanks for, thanks for sticking with us and helping us uh, go deep. You know, we really appreciate your ears. And if you have a few extra moments, um, we would love it if you would check out our Patreon page. You can support us that way. We would also love it if you would give us a follow on Twitter at WeCroak. We're always retweeting cool things that we find or replying back to users who have got a really cool we quote quote at a interesting moment and uh, have something to say about it so definitely check us out on there and and engage we love we love hanging out with you yeah and also uh subscribe and leave a review for the podcast that would be awesome and thanks so much for joining us and now back to the regularly scheduled conversation So basically going back to the hand-washing example in your experiment. So based on your meta-analysis, you expect that through exposure therapy, that instead of increasing the hand-washing time, it would eventually decrease again, like follow up a bell curve back down. Yeah, yeah, basically that if, if my underlying fears of death have been treated, then I should have no reason to wash my hands anymore. If I'm if my underlying fears of death are gone and I'm not consciously worried about illness, my washing time should look the same as any other typical person who doesn't have OCD. And that's, I think, the really important thing that came out of that first paper we published was um, the, the, the first paper about death anxiety being transdiagnostic, is that at the moment, our treatments for mental health conditions focus just on the symptoms of the day, so the, the symptoms that that person presents with. So, for example, with OCD, if someone comes and they're compulsively washing, we just treat the washing. We just focus on getting that washing time down. But, of course, if, the, if death anxiety is underlying that, then it's likely this person is just going to go on to develop some other set of symptoms. So, yes, you've treated their washing, but if they then go off and develop social anxiety or illness anxiety or something else, have you really, is that treatment really a long-term success? So we argued in that paper that at the moment, even though our CBT treatments get really good effects for anxiety, we know that people tend to have more than one disorder across their life. So are we actually doing them a disservice by just treating what we see and not treating what could be the underlying, um, the underlying cause going on? So 
your argument is that fear of death is the underlying cause for many of these conditions. Yeah, yeah. How many conditions do you su suspect that fear of death is the underlying cause? Maybe f 15 or so disorders. We have some evidence um, of death anxiety being at least related to it. And in disorders that you might, again, you might not expect. So I mentioned social anxiety already, but things like um, alcohol use disorder, a recent study of mine found that death anxiety is significantly associated with how severe someone's alcohol use is, if, if it's a disorder, um, even things like eating disorders. So there's a really interesting study done showing that, um, again, when you remind women in particular of death, they are more restrictive of what they eat in a taste testing task afterwards. So you remind people of death or the control and women, but not men, restrict the amount of food that they eat, suggesting that they're kind of using that buffer of worldviews in terms of worldviews about being thin and being attractive um, and restricting what they're eating. So even in disorders that you, you wouldn't see as being so obviously connected, there seems to be this link. So off the top of my head, I think it's around 15 disorders. It could be um, it shouldn't be less, it might be a couple more. So it's a fair chunk of different parts of mental health in terms of um, not just anxiety disorders, but also possibly eating disorders, addictive disorders, um, obsessive compulsive disorders, and mood and depre depressive disorders as well. So it's a fair slab of them. Wow. That, that sounds like a really big deal. Like you're onto a dream of helping a lot of people with your research. Um, where are you headed with this? I know that you have done three papers on it. You've carved this out as a research niche for yourself. Do you have any plans or dreams of where you want to take this re research, what you want to look at next, and um, how, how you think it can help people? At the moment, I've got a few things on my plate at the moment. So we're currently midway through a study looking at reminders of death and three other disorders. And so far we have pretty strong evidence there that death anxiety does drive those three disorders. So at the moment, there's a pretty strong theoretical argument for how death anxiety relates to a lot of conditions like we've talked about. But I do still think we need, we need more experimental evidence just to see how far it reaches. So that's one thing I'm doing at the moment. The thing I'm really excited about is this treatment program because I think having an online treatment, it's something that people can access anywhere in the world. Um, it's very cost effective. It doesn't require, you know, the having having a therapist nearby, a lot of therapists as well. Um, it's not something, you know, I've, I've finished my master's in clinical psychology and it's not something that you ever get taught or trained about dealing with because it is such a new topic. So, Unfortunately, there aren't a lot of psychologists who get training in this area of working with people who are fearful of death. So having an online treatment program means that anyone anywhere in the world can access this and hopefully their symptoms can improve as a result. So that's something I'm really excited about at the moment. I'm also in um, August this year doing a series of workshops for clinicians across Australia. So helping, um, trying to give some of that training. So trying to teach clinical psychologists around the country, strategies for dealing with clients who do have these kinds of fears. So a lot of my work so far has been focused on demonstrating that link between death anxiety and mental health, and I do want to keep keep furthering that. Um, but the goal for me has really always been treatment, so helping people overcome these fears of death that can be really debilitating and really have a negative impact on their life. So when do you think the online treatment program will be live? 
So we're hoping to do to have finished the kind of pilot study of it probably by mid next year. So it's still it's still a fair while off. So that'll just be running, getting 20 or so participants to um, have a go at it. And hopefully down the track, hopefully in the next couple of years, we'll have it ready online for anyone to use. So it's still it's still in the process of getting it all together, getting it all online, and then we'll have to trial it. But hopefully in the next maybe two years, two, three years, it should be online and accessible for anyone all around the world. All right. Well, whenever that happens, we'll be sure to let people know about it and have it update the uh, podcast notes so that listeners then can connect with that work. That sounds really interesting. That would be great. What I find really interesting about this conversation is just how closely the science, which of course is very evidence-based, seems to be tracking a lot of just basically the mindfulness theory coming out of particularly um, uh, Buddhist and Stoic schools about one, mm. the first aversion everyone had, the natural aversion we all have to death. Um, they talk about a lot. And then, of course, you know, the Bhutanese folk saying, think about death five times a day. Many other, um, you know, Stoics used to say, like, remind yourself that you love a mortal every time you kiss a spouse or a child. Like, mm. Really do it all the time in order to have more mental well-being and health um and that's coming through in the research is is really um it's interesting and cool i'm just um do you ever wonder how uh, how people got to some of these same um sorts of conclusions from um from meditation or philosophy is that does that question interest you yeah, yeah, definitely. I think you're right. There is such a an overlap between really different schools, different in terms of you know ways of thinking, time, geographical location, but they're coming to the same sorts of conclusions. You know, Stoicism and Buddhism both have this big element of thoughts being what causes distress or attachment being what causes distress. So in terms of yeah, how they got to the same conclusion, I guess because they were just right on the money. And if you think about something long enough you're bound to come to something useful. And I think anyone who follows me on Twitter will know I'm obsessed with stoicism and I can't stop talking about it. So I'll try and rein it in for today. But I think, you know, CBT was huge in psychology. It's like I said, it's the gold standard treatment. It was developed in the fifties and sixties and just revolutionized psychology. But so much of CBT um, is based on stoicism. So much of CBT, if you read it, it reads as though you're reading something like Meditations by Marcus Aurelius and vice versa. So that's something I've always found interesting, that we consider CBT and this idea of questioning our thoughts a really kind of novel, modern invention in psychology, but it's drawing back to, you know, a 2,000-year-old philosophy that unfortunately a lot of people don't seem to, to read very much. I know there have been a lot of books recently coming out on Stoicism, which is great, but, you know, it took me... 20, 23, 24 years of my life to start engaging in stoicism. But it's such a, it's such a, and Buddhism as well, they're both such really life-changing philosophies and ways of viewing the world. And I think it's a shame that psychology hasn't borrowed from them sooner. Yeah, just so listeners know, I mean, CBT is really helpful if you have like a acute problem, there are workbooks and these things, like exposure therapies you can do. Uh, but sometimes it really does, if you know stoicism, read like a crib sheet translated into modern scientific language from Marcus Aurelius mm -hmm. or Epictetus. And then, you know, once you really want to like flourish in life, 
you know, the ancient Stoics, you know, take it a little bit farther and also say it in a language that might be a little bit more accessible to everyday life than the scientific language, which of course is very specific and evidence-based. Yeah, I think CBT done well, we'd be aiming for all of the same things. So I think CBT done well should be really practical and accessible, you know, particularly if you have a good a good therapist that you're working with. But but you're right, nothing kind of quite compares to reading someone like Seneca, who I was just saying, I was just saying to someone last night, that when I read Seneca, because I'm reading him at the moment, it's so beautiful. His words are just so striking and so beautiful that it almost like brings me to tears to read him. Um, and that's something that, you know, it's going to be very rare that you're brought to tears by your therapist explaining thought challenging to you. So I think, you know, I, I agree that that reading those um, in those kind of traditions, it just gives you a really different perspective on it. Yeah, and I actually have a book on my nightstand right now called How to Die by Seneca. Uh, that's the one really I'm reading at the moment, yeah. For, oh, well, yeah, it just came out recently, and it's, you know, it's he thought a lot about about death clearly, and it was uh, a mm. big part of his uh, approach to fa- practical philosophy and living. Mm. And he lived at a time of a, particular, a particularly difficult time in Rome where there was a really corrupt emperor, um, so you know, kind of some interesting cognates to where you might, modern life, where, you know, we live in a very strange world that isn't always uh, sane around us, and yet he's able to find a lot of health and uh, happiness despite that. Yeah, absolutely. Seneca in particular, I think, you know, when you read his letters and things that he wrote in exile, and he's living this horrible life, completely isolated and separated from all of his family, all of his loved ones, but when you read his letters to his to his mother, it's, you know, oh, it's great. It's what's the difference between exile and a holiday? And it's really kind of jokey. <laughs> and, and you think, gosh, like if he could if he could withstand that, if he could withstand, like he said, living under tyranny, watching all of his friends be sent to suicide. Um, you know, why can't I put up with my my bus running 20 minutes late this morning? <laughs> Does uh, your love of stoicism inform your research in any way, help you with ideas or um like help you design experiments? What's the relationship there? I think it's a pretty strong relationship. My second major in in university was ancient history. So I've always loved history. And I think that got me really thinking about how fears of death are so pervasive in history as well. You know, a lot of the Greek myths or Greek tragedies have those kind of themes, the mummification rituals. So, So many ancient rituals are clearly trying to deny the physicality of death. And in terms of my research now, I think with this treatment program, I've really tried to draw on a lot of the other, you know, a lot of the great thinkers and important philosophies in the area. So the treatment program kind of features quotes. We've got some quotes from Marcus Aurelius in there. We recommend books like How to Die by Seneca. We've got, you know, a video in there looking at different um, stoic perspectives on, on death and that kind of thing. So we've really tried to make it really engaging to try and expose people to these ideas that, you know, most people just don't ever get exposure to. So I think it's really helped helped me in this area and given me a really different perspective on this topic, which is great. That's really cool. And when you are thinking about, you know, some of these sources and some of these inspirations, does it help you with your motivation to do this work as well? Yeah, I think it does. I think I'm I'm really passionate about I am really passionate about CBT and stoicism and 
death. Like all of it's been a really great way, I think, for me to kind of bring together all of these different things that I'm really passionate about and really think can help people. Because I think it, it's just, yeah, death, as I'm sure, I'm sure you know, and I'm, you know, I guess that's the point of the We Croak um, app as well. It's not something people tend to engage with. Um, it's not something I think we're kind of raised to view as normal to talk about. It's very, you know, it's very taboo. People get quite uncomfortable when you talk about it. And I just don't think that's helpful to anyone. I don't think it's helpful as we're trying to live our life. And I particularly don't think it's helpful at the end of life where people might be wanting to have these conversations, wanting to make, you know, plans for the end of life, but they don't know who to turn to or how to talk about it. So I think for me, I'm also motivated by that sort of um, social aspect of helping people feel more comfortable to talk about these things. Um, And as a result, to make better, more informed decisions at the end of life and in those sorts of situations as well. So for me, the the kind of impacts of this are really broad and really diverse. Yeah. I mean, it sounds like you're just onto a really big area of research. What Of all the findings you've had so far, which one would you say surprised you the most? I'm always surprised by just the strength of the findings. So far, the findings I've found are all in line with our predictions. So, so far, for every hypothesis we've had, basically, we find support for it, which is very rare in in any kind of psychology where, well, in psychology in general, it's very rare because obviously people are very messy and the data can be really noisy and it's, it's you're celebrating even a single hypothesis being supported. So in my studies, I think I've, I'm sort of setting myself up to fail because the day when I don't find a supported hypothesis, I'll be devastated because in every study, every single prediction we find support for. And that kind of surprises me because the effects are so huge, like in the OCD washing study, for example, the statistical probability of getting that effect by chance alone was, I think, um, 0.001%. So the effect was so huge that that's something you rarely see in psychology. So I think that's what I found most surprising is just how consistent this effect is and how large it is when you find it. So 0.01 is the statistical randomness of the effect. And what was the actual effect after um, a, a death salience reminder? So it led to twice as long washing. So I think that the average... Um, Oh, washing wow. for someone, yeah, so it was double the time spent washing. It was an average of 20 seconds if you were in the mortality salience condition and had the washing type of OCD. So 20 seconds is a really long time to be washing your hands under a, a tap. And the chance of getting that effect purely as a fluke, the chance of finding that 20-second average as a fluke was 0.001%. So it's a really huge effect. Um, and I've seen those sorts of numbers in pretty much every experiment I've done since then. So it's not noise, it's not incremental, it's usually, you know, a surprising doozy of a strong effect. Yeah, yeah, much stronger actually than the effects you tend to find in in other terror management studies when you look at kind of um, non-clinical populations. When you look in these clinical groups that I've been doing these studies with, you know, these people really generously give up their time for research, when you look in these groups, the effects are huge, like unbelievable effects. You know, as a PhD student, effects that you pop a bottle of champagne for, huge effects that you just really very rarely see in the literature. So that's something that I'm consistently both surprised and delighted by because it's really showing how promising this area is for research. That's exciting and and surprising. You know, you obviously, um, as you mentioned, people don't know they're doing it. <laughs> Yeah, 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 uh, I know. 
so now I'm thinking about, huh, I wonder all the things that I'm doing differently <laughs> because I'm thinking about death a lot than I otherwise would be. Um, yeah, that's right. That's really, really wild. What, what do you imagine is the next population that you're really excited to look into, whether fear of death might be driving? What's your next hypothesis? I'm not sure. I, yeah, I'm not sure. I'll, I'll sort of do anything I can, I think. Um, I don't have a particular next population in mind. So at the moment, I'm looking at three disorders, which is panic disorder uh, and illness anxiety and somatic symptom disorder. So those are three um, sort of broadly anxiety-related disorders. Anxiety, generally speaking, is something I'm really interested in. So I'd probably like to have a look at a few more anxiety disorders there's some interesting stuff coming out now about social anxiety, really mixed findings about whether death anxiety does drive social anxiety. So two studies seem to show that it does, but a, a colleague of mine, Matt Zakala, is doing research finding quite different results. So I think that's definitely an area we need more research in. But for my own research, I'm honestly, I'm just interested in, in doing anything I can with this topic. I think it has such potential and I really, I really love doing it. It's, it's great to work with these people. Well, thank you so much for coming on the Wheat Crook podcast and sharing your time with us. This is really amazing to hear about all the research happening in Death Reminders. And, you know, mental health is such an important topic today. And it's important to know that there's new areas of research and perhaps new therapies coming in the way for people who are really suffering. Is there anything I should have asked you that I didn't? No, I, I think that was great. I think we covered a lot of ground. Thank you so much for having me on. It's been fantastic. Yeah, yeah. And if people are interested in your studies or your work, where can they go to hear more about you? I have a website, which is www.rachelmenzies.com. Um, so they could go there. If you're interested in the topic in general, we also published a book um, last year, which is called Curing the Dread of Death. Um, so that book sort of summarizes a lot of the the work in the area. It's an it's an edited book, so we were lucky enough to have really fantastic contributors from all around the world, including some of the founders of terror management theory, which was fantastic. So that's something they could also check out if they were interested. Um, but otherwise, on my website. Okay, fantastic. Well, thank you so much for joining us today, and uh, do let us know if any other big studies come out that we should know about. Perfect. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for joining us this week. If you want to dive even deeper into Rachel Menzies' work, you got to check out Death Anxiety, the worm at the core of mental health. We have a link to it in the show notes. And until then, we'll see you next time.